Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Sports Illustrated Major League Baseball writer Tom Verducci. Yeah, that's that's... That's fantastic. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with a Sports Illustrated baseball writer. He's been named National Sports Writer of the Year. There's a reporter and analyst at MLB Network and Fox Sports. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Verducci. Tom, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Right out of the shoot. First game you remember going to, ever? <laughs> well, it was uh, at Yankee Stadium. I'm talking the old, old, original Yankee Stadium. It was the Washington Senators against the New York Yankees. And like a lot of people, I remember walking into that ballpark like I was walking into the Grand Canyon, just blown away by the size of it. I mean, that was probably six or seven years old. And uh, a couple of things stood out for me. Number one, there was a home run that went behind the monument in center field at Yankee Stadium, which is like, you know, a, a $10 cab ride from home plate. And the other thing, being six years old, I saw those monuments out in center field, and I, I swore that those guys were buried back there. I thought it was headstones, not monuments. So I remember those things happening in my first game, and, Obviously, the smell of the ballpark and the colors and everything was, was everything was just so much more vibrant than what I saw on TV. So, love at first sight in terms of being at a ball game. Tom Verducci, born in New Jersey, raised in Glen Ridge, grew up a Met fan. Kind of, kind of weird. You, your first, your first game was a Yankee game, but you grew up a Met fan. Um, just take me through your childhood. What was what was Tom Verducci like as as a kid? Baseball well, player, all, or I, I had established the connection there because when I went to the Senators Yankees game, it was because my father's cousin, name was Joan Lombardi. She married Gil Hodges, so Gil Hodges was managing the Senators at the time. And of course, then when he was actually traded to the Mets to become their manager, well, it was natural for me to become a Mets fan. So that's how. I wound up at Yankee Stadium and how I became a Mets fan. So for me growing up, I was just all about sports. My dad was a high school baseball and football coach. Uh, I grew up idolizing the guys who were playing on the varsity team, not major league players, not NFL players. Uh, I just I went to all his practices. I learned the game from the inside out, which to me has always been an advantage for me in this business is that I never looked at it from a fan's perspective. I always looked at it from a coach's perspective, and that was because of my dad. I got to see all the work that he put in, uh, not just the results on game day. So I felt, for me and my profession, that turned out to be a big advantage. Did you like playing, or were you more interested in the other side uh, of the other side? No, I love playing. Are you kidding? I played everything. And in high school, I played football, basketball, baseball. I walked out of Penn State with baseball program there. Um, so there's nothing better than actually playing the game. The next best thing is to be able to write about it and learn about it. But um, no, it's, if, it, if, if you kept score, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I grew up with 
seven brothers and sisters, and especially with my brothers, we were always competing, whether it was Monopoly, Wiffle Ball, uh, Game of 21, or Hoops in the Driveway, constant competition. So for me, especially my two older brothers, obviously bigger and stronger than me growing up, it was a great training ground to try to prove yourself. So we were constantly battling each other, got the scars to prove it. Um, so there's still nothing better than actually being the one in the arena rather than reporting on it. Yeah, it's interesting because I've, you know, I've had uh, Jason Stark on and, and Peter Gammons and Tyler Kepner and, it's a very similar story to what you just said. It, I mean, the passion for the game uh, and sports in general was off the charts and, and uh, you pursued another Avenue yet keeping, keeping, you know, that love of sport at the forefront. Uh, you went to Seton hall prep and then you end up at Penn state. Uh, how'd you end up at Penn state? Well, I actually, I was lucky Brett from the time I was probably, I don't know, almost in grade school, even when you start thinking about things you want to do in life, I always wanted to be a writer. So I knew what I wanted to do, assuming the whole baseball thing didn't work out, of course. Um, so I was lucky that I picked a college where I knew had a good journalism program um, with a huge sports program. It was like having an internship for four years, you get to cover the football team, go to bowl games. Um, and the newspaper there, the student newspaper there was a daily newspaper. So it really was like having a job while you were in college. So it turned out to be exactly what I wanted it to be. And my other introduction to Penn State was, you know, I mentioned my dad was a football coach. He would coach at the Penn State summer football camps. And I would go up there and, and with him for a couple of days in the summers and just absolutely loved the campus. So it was kind of the first campus that I saw. And it just, it's a beautiful campus anyway, but first impressions really last and I always thought yeah that would be cool to, to go away to Penn State someday and it's one of those schools Brett that's close enough to home yet it's far enough away as well so for me it was the best of all worlds and I tell people if you want a completely immersive college experience because those four years for a lot of people are the best years of your life I'm not sure I'd say that because hopefully things get better as you get older but in terms of responsibilities and just enjoying yourself, it's tough to beat. So I love the fact that when you go to Penn State, it's the center of everything. I mean, there's literally nothing around the area. Uh, everything revolves around the school, and it's kind of cool to have just this immersive college atmosphere. It's the prototypical college town. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? 
Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code Boone, B-O-O-N-E. Bet $1 on either team to score and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code Boone this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Tom Verducci. You know, and this interests me too, as, as players, and you know, when I'm coming up and I'm choosing the college that I'm going to go to, not that, um, not that it's, if you, if you can play and you're just better than the rest of the players, you're going to find your way. You, the best of the best, as you know, are going to find their way to the big leagues. Uh, the, the avenue you chose, uh, if, if you find a way to to bring yourself above and, and, and beyond the rest of the, let's call them writers at the time, that you're kind of competing with, how important is well, the school, how, how important to you that, is the school you choose? Yeah, I do agree with you, Brett, that, you know, if you're good enough that, you know, the path you take there really doesn't be the, it's not the determining factor. In other words, the school that you go to, the exposure that you get, you can make your way. It takes a lot of hard work and obviously you have to have some baseline of ability, but I do believe that, you know, there are certain resources. I mentioned this at Penn State being a larger school, certain resources I was able to take advantage of, but it still comes down to that sort of blast furnace that you have in yourself and how hot that thing runs on its own. We're all good when we're in front of a teacher or a parent or friends that tell us what to do. It's in those moments when you're on your own and you have to decide if you're going to do the extra work without anybody seeing it. If you're going to ask the other, you know, the extra question, you know, if you're going to work on a third or fourth draft on your own, all those things are determined on your own basis, not based on the school that you went to. And you better have that in you. And I think everybody does. It's a matter of really of finding it and, and listening to it and getting the most out of yourself. You wrote for the Daily Collegian. Uh, you mentioned you you uh, you covered the football team. Did, when you're in college and, and you're just getting your career started, uh, is there any assignment you were ever given that was like, well, this is kind of outside of my comfort zone? Were, or were you just bringing on whatever you got for me? I was more the latter, Brett. I mean, I, uh, the first beat that I was on in school was the women's lacrosse team. I mean, they could have put me on the debate team. I didn't care. Um, it was more about just the opportunity and the process. And, and I've always said that, I never really wrote for the byline. I mean, you could take my byline off the story. I really wouldn't care. To me, it's about the process of reporting and writing. Now, I understand the byline is important because it's the ultimate level of accountability. When you think about what we do, my name, my face is on every single thing that I produce. Uh, So that's an inescapable degree of accountability. And when you work in the media business, that's a good thing. But at the same time, it's not like, you know, I get a kick out of seeing my name in the byline. It's not why I do it. Again, that's why I say in a theoretical world, if the byline is not important to me, it's having the opportunity to, you know, to write interesting stories, find things out about people, and hopefully put it together in such a way that, you know, someone's going to find it interesting and or informative. Yeah, very cool. And, and, and the answer you gave of you don't bring it, 
just give me anything. I, I, I can, I can handle anything you throw my, I, that's the passion you kind of have to have. And, and as players, as different as, as our, you know, our paths are, they're very similar in a lot of ways. I mean, I remember as a, as a young kid and in the minor leagues and in a ball, I mean, you could throw anything at me and I would just bring it, bring it. Cause where, cause I want to get to the next level. And, and when I get to that next level, I want to get to the next level. Um, it, that passion's unbelievable. And then <laughs> the later I got in my career, you know, when you're asked to do uh, those things, it's like, wait a minute, I did those. I did that 20 years ago. But you're right. When you're when you're young and you're hungry, it's like, bring it on. I, I, I want to almost prove to you that I can do anything you throw at me. Yeah, that's a really important point, Brett. And I'm glad you made that analogy to ball playing because it is very similar. And I tell this to students and prospective journalists all the time that, there's no assignment that's beneath you. There's, there's no assignment that you should say no to. Everything is an opportunity to learn and to gain experience. And it's the same as if you were playing it. If you were a second baseman and somebody said, hey, go play third base tonight, go play it and play the heck out of it because you're only going to get better. And actually your second base play is going to be better by playing another position and seeing a different perspective. And the same thing is with whatever assignments, tell people all the time, just get as much work as you can. There's, there's nothing you should say no to. You leave Penn state. Your, your first gig is uh, in Florida, uh, Florida today. You did it for a year. I will take it. will just take me through that, that first, you know, you're out of college, first real job in Florida. Well, it's the equivalent of going to the Florida state league. <laughs> I mean, right. really, you, you do everything. I was doing editing. I was doing page layout designs. I was covering baseball spring training. My primary beat was covering the Miami Dolphins. I was lucky enough to be covering Don Shula, who treated me like I was a 20-year veteran on the beat, and I'll still never forget that, what a gentleman Don Shula was. I mean, here I was covering for some small suburban newspaper showing up, not even every day, like three or four times a week at Dolphins camp. And, uh, you know, he treated me the same as anybody else who's from the big papers in Miami. I, I never forgot that. It was just, first of all, it was an honor to be around him. But, you know, you learn that, you know, he's not just a good coach, but he's a good person. And, man, there's nothing that counts more than that. So that was a great experience for me. And, um, you know, I liked it because, again, I was doing a lot of different things and learning about the editing process as well as the writing process. Um, so it was a great opportunity to make basically no money whatsoever, but you know, I'm single living in Florida. The winters aren't bad at all. Uh, so even though it was a year, it was a terrific training ground. I, I think, again, it's something I would recommend to anybody starting out. Everybody's in a hurry to get to a major market. And I probably was myself, but you know, there's no doubt that I was better off for doing that kind of work, which is a lot of hard work for just no pay whatsoever but great life experiences and, uh, and work experiences. And it's right. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a, a fair comparison. That is the Florida state league. You're going from the space coast, I think was the name of the stadium, uh, to yeah. Broadway the yeah. next year, 1983, you go to Newsday. you go from, I don't know. I, I hear when I was doing my research, tell me if my numbers are, are somewhat accurate. I think they are. There was about 50, 55,000, reading uh florida today now all of a sudden you're going to newsday you're going to five hundred thousand. um how'd you go from yeah. florida to the big apple and 
how big of a, 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 I don't know. I mean, you're in Florida, you're doing your thing. Florida, New York's a different animal, you know, as a player going there, it's just different. It's the big time. It's the, the bright lights, uh, going to Newsday and, and getting your first taste of New York. Um, take me through that. Yeah, it's, well, you got to remember at the time, Newsday is one of the top 10 biggest newspapers in the country. And at the time, it was primarily a Long Island newspaper, but it started as soon as I got there to make this push into the city to try to compete with the New York Daily News and the Post and the Times. And I mean, listen, if you're a Marine, they send you to Camp Lejeune. If you're a journalist, they send you to New York City. Because if you can get through there, it's the ultimate boot camp. You know, only the survivors come out the other side and, and are much better off for it, but it weeds people out. There's no question about it. So I'll never forget, I originally was hired as a backup baseball writer and uh, a high school sports writer. And I remember the first story I was writing back in the day, everybody wrote in the office for the most part. And um, as I sat there, I can't remember what the story was. I'm sure it was a high school sports story, but my editor came by and he said, well, you're not writing for the Daily Collegian anymore. And I guess it was his way of saying kind of what you're alluding to here that, you know, a lot more people will read this. The, the attention is certainly greater. The importance is greater. But it struck me as odd because for me, it didn't matter whether I was writing from the Daily Collegian, Coco Today or Newsday. I only wanted to do the best that I could. And it, it really didn't matter what the circulation was or even what the subject was. I was just driven by this compass that was telling me, do the best that you can, period. I can't do more than that. And just because the circulation has gone up, I can't all of a sudden, you know, turn into Ernest Hemingway and start, you know, right, turning out this flowery prose. So it just struck me as odd that he would say that. I know why he said it, but for me, it just didn't resonate that all of a sudden I had to be something different because the stage was a lot big, bigger. And I think that served me well. Um, so, Covering high school sports, and I think it was a year later, I was in the back of the office and it was about a foot of snow on the ground. It's early February. And he says to me, can you get down to spring training tomorrow at Fort Lauderdale to cover the Yankees? Well, I mean, I'm like 22 years old, a year or two out of college, single. At the time, Fort Lauderdale was like the place to go for spring break if you were a college kid. Uh, I knew I'd get a rental car that was better than whatever I was bucket I was driving in New York. Uh, I knew I'd be living in a place better than the room I was renting in somebody's house in New York. I was on the next thing smoking down to Florida. I couldn't wait to get down there, not just to cover baseball, but to really see what it was like to cover the Yankees and be at spring training. That's very cool. And and that is kind of leading into where I wanted to go. We've had a lot of writers, analysts, uh, journalists on the podcast, and I've never asked this, but the minor leagues is we traveled a certain way. We got A to B. It was a bus. It, our meal money back then was nothing. What we were making a month. I, I listen to these minor leaguers now and I laugh about we need this. We need that. I'm like, I made 650 in a ball. And, and I was like you uh, on the baseball side. It Nothing bothered me. It was like I put my blinders on. I had a job to do. It doesn't matter where I was doing it, whether I was in a ball or I was in the big leagues, just because I was in the big leagues and Roger Clemens 
Clemens wants to throw one, you know, buzz my tower doesn't mean I'm going to swing any softer, Roger. And that's the attitude I had going in there. When you get to the big leagues, we all know how we travel. It's we've got our plane waiting for us. Everything is nice. It's accommodating. It's it's red carpet. But take me through the days of of back in the beginning. How did you travel? When you were covering these teams, how do you get to the next city? How do you, where do you stay? You have to book your own, your own hotel. Or is that all taken care of for you? Now, at this stage of your career, I understand, yay, they're going to treat you first class, do this, that, nice hotel. But back when you're trying to make a name for yourself, how do you get that try? How do you get to that deadline? How do you get to that next city? Take the, take the listeners through that. Well, young people today will be amazed to hear this, but I'm old enough to go back to when, as writers, we actually traveled with the team. So we were on the team charter. And I'll tell you, you talk about pressure in the business, there's no greater pressure than when it's getaway day and you have to file a story after the game and you know that you're traveling with the charter plane you do not want to be that guy who takes so long to write your story that the Yankees are waiting for you on that charter plane. I mean, you don't, you don't write a story any quicker than when you do on deadline on, uh, on a getaway day. That's for sure. Now that ended probably a, maybe only a year or two, a couple of years in, I think what happened was when the, uh, well, the players, I probably didn't like the writers be on the plane anyway, but when the airlines started going to frequent flyer systems, we all started chasing the frequent flyer points and hotel points. So we started making our own travel there. So the days of traveling with the team ended fairly quickly, maybe once in a while, and you couldn't get to that next city in time. Maybe they'd let you on the plane. But for the most part, then it became just flying commercial, making your own arrangements. So I've always said, you know, when you work in a place like Sports Illustrated or Newsday, you're almost like a freelancer. You're almost like um, – an independent contractor because you do have to make your own arrangements. You don't really see the people that you work with in terms of the colleagues who are covering other sports. You see your competitors at the ballpark. So it's a different kind of life. You really have to be self-sufficient. You learn that really quickly. Um, you know, how to be efficient with your time and travel is super important. Getting your rest, all those things. Um, so you have to be, I think, to do the job, you have to be really self-motivated. You have to be a self-starter because you can't rely on people. Well, there's no people around. You can say you can't really rely on other people to get your work done for you and your arrangements. You have to do it yourself. It was funny. I had Joe West on, and, and I, I posed that question to him, you know, about the travel. Because as a player, you know, we used to get pissed. And I mean, I'd be, I remember being at Shea Stadium and we got extra innings. And I'm, I'm starting to think that that strike zone starting to get bigger and bigger. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, this crew right here, they might have to be in another city calling a game tomorrow. Our plane's going to be waiting for us however long this game takes. So I remember always looking at the umpires going, you know, the worst case is, You've got to fly out in the morning, but but my at bat's really important to me, Joe. And that outside and that strike on the outside corner, I expect it to be the same strike it was in the first inning. I needled him a little bit on it, but that's just it, it just kind of shows you the deadlines we all have. You in the media, 
me when I was a player, Joe West as a, as a uh, umpire on on the field. We all have different ways. Obviously, the players we get the best way. It's that plane will wait for us. But the umpires have an agenda too. They've got to they've got to get to maybe Baltimore or Pittsburgh tomorrow with that four man crew. So everybody's got you've got a deadline. You're sitting up in the booth going, OK, I got to get maybe you're going somewhere else. You got to catch a plane. So it was really interesting to me, the dynamics of, of everything that goes on uh, in the big leagues or at the highest level in, in any sport, especially the big leagues, because it's every day. You know, it's one hundred and sixty two. It's well, not once a week. Yeah. Well, Brett, you've been around the game long enough. You understand this as well as anybody that baseball gives you a lot of reasons to complain. If you want to complain, you've got them by the boatload reasons to complain in the game. It's a long season and travel never goes well. There's lots of things that get in your way in terms of doing your job, whether you're a player or you're in the media. I hopefully I learned this fairly quickly, but I learned it somewhere along the line is that nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear it. You have to anticipate that things are going to go wrong, that the plane is going to be late, that they're going to lose your luggage, that you're not going to get enough sleep. Then the issue is, how do you move on from those things that go wrong? Because they're going to happen. It's like Roger Clemens told me once, on the night he puts his head down before one of his starts, the night before his starts, he doesn't think about pitching a perfect game. He thinks about, here are the pitches I need to make when I'm going to be in trouble. Because you're going to be in trouble. You're not going to throw a perfect game as much as you really want to. There's going to be times, two guys on base, one out. How do I get out of the inning? Anticipate trouble. Don't be surprised when it shows up. I thought that was fascinating that he had that mindset to really work through the pressure points of the game, the difficulties of a game, rather than thinking it's going to be all milk and honey through a game. So quick story for you, Brett, about travel and, and complaining. This is very early on when Billy Martin was managing the Yankees. And you talk about a full day. When you were covering George Steinbrenner slash Billy Martin Yankees, it was 24-7 before there was an internet. In other words, you had to cover the game, of course, but then you had to go to the hotel bar and cover Billy there because you weren't sure what was going to happen next. And that's where you got a lot of the information from Billy anyway. And then the next day, you had to sit by your hotel phone, hoping that George Steinbrenner called you back. So it's a 24-7 cycle covering the Yankees. It is a grind. And I really mean that. You can't underestimate how much back in the day, again, even before cell phones and internet, that you are on call 24-7. So there was one game in Oakland where Billy goes into one of his fits, arguing a call. He picks up fistfuls of dirt, and he throws it at the umpire, Dale Scott. And obviously he gets ejected from the game. It's a big to-do. So we need to talk to the umpires after the game. Dale Scott is a rookie umpire. Richie Garcia is the crew chief. Richie Garcia won't let us, the Yankees beat writers, talk to Dale Scott. I get what he's doing. You know, he's, he's the older guy in that group. He's the crew chief. He's protecting Dale Scott. He's going to answer the question, which is fine. Uh, except he took one question, and then he said, that's it. We've had a long day. And I stepped up and I said, you know what? We just flew cross country from New York for this. We still have to write our stories. Our day is just getting started. We just want to ask more questions. Richie Garcia, and I'm sure you know him. He I knew do. his top. He, he actually started coming at me. And it's a good thing there was a security agent there. 
were actually stepped in before he could get to me. So those are the things we go through. I don't want to say all the time. It certainly doesn't happen all the time. Uh, but the pressure points of a job, whether you're a player, you're an umpire, you're a media person, it's going to happen. And again, it's more of how you respond to it. And after that, you know, Richie and I had a really good relationship. It was obviously just the heat of the moment kind of thing. Uh, and we both understood that. Well, tell me about tell me about deadlines. All right, I'm I'm layman when it comes to to that. I mean, obviously, I, I deal with the press. I dealt with the press for 20 years, so I know that game, that song and dance in the in the locker room before and after the game. But tell me about what is a deadline? What does that mean? When do you start writing a story? This is interesting, you know, stuff that that people don't get to hear about every day. Yeah, well, it's one of the great mysteries in life, by the way, that the faster technology has become, the deadlines still stink, if you ask any writer. It's like, I, I don't know why they can't invent a dryer that doesn't eat one of your socks all the time. And I don't know why technology <laughs> doesn't improve to the point where deadlines don't improve. It's one of the great mysteries in life, if you're a writer anyway. So <clears throat> the deadline meeting, there's a couple of deadlines in the course of the night based on what edition of your newspaper is coming out. So for me, working for Newsday at the time, I would have to write a story before the game. That's called an early story, and that would be in the early edition because they can't wait for the night games to be played. There's not enough time. So there's some sort of feature story, news of the day, a change in the pitching rotation, somebody's injury. That's basically going to take the place of the game story once the game is over. Now, during the game, there's another edition that comes out right after the game ends. So I have to do what's called running. So while the game is going on, I'm writing a story. Basically, it's all done until the last out is made, I push send, and that story goes into the next edition. And then I go down to the clubhouse, try to figure out what went on in the game, talk to people, get some quotes, hopefully write a better story than the running story. And then that story goes into the late edition that hopefully is the edition most people see. So that's three stories in the course of the night. You're doing that every game. Now, I say things have changed because now most, obviously, newspapers, are, most people are going to read it online. Um, but again, I think the time that writers get to get their story out hasn't gotten any longer. In fact, it's probably gotten shorter because people's attention spans have gotten shorter. So it's not like now you have three or four hours to get that story in. Uh, because there's no, in many cases, a literal printing press to get it to and trucks to deliver it. So everything has become faster, including the amount of time you have to write. 1990, you become a columnist. Uh, it's a difference in a beat writer and a columnist. Uh, a little bit of a pay raise, actually. That was good. Um Difference is now I'm a what they call a national baseball writer. So I'm not just writing about the Yankees and Mets. I'm writing the issues of the day, whatever's going on in baseball, the biggest stories. It's still very locally heavy in terms of the percentage of copy that I'm writing that's about Yankees and Mets. But also, there are times now I can go off to the other clubhouse, say the visiting team, they're coming to Yankee Stadium, and maybe there's a good story there. You know, Ken Griffey Jr. is coming to town. Let's do a story on Griffey. Um, so it frees you up to see more than just, you know, a very narrow vision of baseball. 
And I always thought I was lucky in New York because I was exposed to both leagues. Back in the day when I first started, we would switch halfway through the season between covering the Yankees and I'd switch with the Mets beat writer and then cover the Mets. Then we started doing that annually, one year on the Yankees, next year on the Mets. And that was such an advantage because I got to see both leagues, every manager, all the players. I wasn't just confined to one league. Uh, so when I became a national baseball writer, I thought the exposure to both leagues over those few years, I was a beat writer, really was advantageous. So it's also a, a chance to kind of get away from that grind I just described about being a beat writer where you're writing three stories a day. Um, now it's more feature-oriented, more opinion-oriented. You have a little more time to craft something that you feel like is worthwhile in terms of craftsmanship of writing. Um, so I found that to be much more enjoyable, a little more sane <laughs> um, in terms of time pressures. So, uh, yeah, I was really happy about transitioning to a national baseball columnist. Support for the Boone podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. And guys, when it came to the equipment I used on the field, it was so important. From the bat I used to the glove I used to the spikes I wore. And when it comes to personal grooming, just as picky, Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. I'm one of the first people to try the new 4.0, and I'm blown away by the performance, the craftsmanship, and the details on the 4.0 are next level. Also, the underwear. The underwear is unbelievable. They're as comfortable as any underwear I've ever worn. Get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code BOON. That's promo code BOON at manscaped.com. And now back to my interview with Tom Verducci. 93, you joined SI, um, which at the time you joined it, I mean, that that's Sports Illustrated in it, it's in its heyday. Uh, the great writers that, that have been at Sports Illustrated, Gammons, Peter King, Frank DeFord, Rick Riley. And that's back when magazine meant there was competition. It was it was sport magazine, the sporting news, ESPN, the magazine, I think, came along a little bit later. But uh, tell me when you go to Sports Illustrated, how's that transition? Yeah, well, first of all, you're exactly right about just the sheer talent. I remember we had an offsite meeting. Basically, it was a golf junket back in the day when magazines were flush with cash get the whole staff together in Florida for a couple of days and talk about editorial decisions and, and mix it in around a few rounds of golf. So when I just remember sitting in a ballroom and it's one of the few times we actually did get together with the staff. Now I'm in the same room as those names you're talking about, you know, the Rick Riley's, the Gary Smith, the Steve Russians. I mean, it's like being on the 1933 American League All-Star team, first All-Star game. You know, you look around, there's Babe Ruth and, you know, Lou Gehrig and whoever else was there in 33. And, you know, you have to pinch yourself that you're a part of this in, in any small way. So that in and of itself was a thrill just to be part of SI. But, Brett, here's what I like best about it. You talk about competition from other magazines. I never thought about that. This is what I thought about. When you go to Sports Illustrated, the competition is – to produce absolute top quality journalism every single time. That's different for newspapers. I just talked about some of the time constraints you have at newspapers. When you go to SI, now you have 
when you don't have the excuses of I didn't have time or I didn't have the resources because if SI needs to put you on a plane to go talk to somebody, they will do that. So by the time you turn in your copy, that better be absolute top quality. Nothing else is expected. Nothing else is tolerated. And I really dug that. I like the fact that everything was expected to be just so good and crisp. Um, nobody ever just skated through an assignment. It's like a hitter, somebody who never gave up an at-bat. You know, of course, for a season, maybe it's going to happen from time to time. You know, you get tired, it's a double header. You're not feeling well. You're playing hurt, whatever it may be. But at SI, you know, as a then a weekly magazine, you know, you didn't have those kind of built-in excuses you could fall back on at newspapers. That I didn't have enough time. I needed more time or I needed, you know, the money to go travel to go talk to this guy. I couldn't get him on the phone. Whatever those excuses were, they all went away at SI. And especially being on a staff with everybody else who's turning out quality stuff, and that bring if that doesn't bring the best out of you, well, you better go check your doctor and make sure you, everything's working in terms of your pulse because that should bring out the best of any if you have a competitive bone in your body. Well, so what you're telling me is it's like being in a class and and newspaper. If you're if you're writing for a daily newspaper, it's almost like you get there's a quiz <laughs> and you, sometimes you, you, you ace it and sometimes you tank it, but SI it's like, Nope, you got to turn paper and it's due X. So you got no excuses to get the, give them your best. You know, when it's due, you know what it needs to be on the desk. No, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, that's right. It's like, okay, I well, brought it. There, there was- it's a, it's, it's a good analogy because you know, no one's going to hold your hand and walk you through that term paper right? It's not like an editor is calling me up every other day. Like, how's it coming? No, all they care about is here's your assignment. Here's how many words in terms of length it should be. And here's what day you need to turn it in on. Anything that happens between them telling you that and you turning it in, that's on you. No one's going to hold your hand and babysit you through that assignment and say, maybe you ought to talk to this guy or, you know, show me an early draft of your story. No, you got to figure it out. <laughs> right. It's all you. And it is. And I, I like that. You know, you're not, there's no one you're going to blame if that's quality. It's all on you. You have no excuses. You know, cause I, I just, um, my son just graduated about a year ago now and he was now eh, not a year, probably six months, but he was grinding cause he had to, he had to write his thesis. He graduated from Princeton, and I remember him just kind of walking around the house. Like my, th- I said, "What'd your thesis do, buddy?" Like uh, he'd give me the date, and I'd say, "How how how much of it are you through?" And he said, "About sixty percent of it." But I could see it, w- when I'd ask him about the thesis, which I you know I I stay away from. I leave him alone as much as I can. But when I would ask him about it, those wheels would start turning because he knew this was really important. He was going to be really proud of it, but it was an interesting process. When you talk about the level of importance uh, for him, that that was a high level of importance. And I could see how he was so meticulous through the process. And I remember the day he said, Dad, it's done. I turned it in. I said, how'd you do? He said, I think it's tremendous. I said, that a, that a kid. I'm proud of you. I never had to write a thesis. You know, USC didn't make me write a thesis. So. But yeah, it's it's very well, I'm interesting. Smiling, I'm smiling listening. I'm smiling listening to that because 
it's kind of the same way for me with a story. I mean, it's not a thesis, but when you write a magazine story, something of, you know, a certain length and obviously a certain amount of time and craftsmanship, to me, you live with that. It never goes away. It's with you when you go to bed. It's with you when you wake up. You know, a newspaper story or a TV assignment, it can come and go. You know, it's more transitory. Whereas working on a magazine assignment, you are living, it's almost a living, breathing thing that you're, that you're keeping track of and trying to nurture and have it turn out to be the best. So it, it, it's never out of your head. It just occupies a lot of headspace. And for somebody who hasn't done that, it's hard to understand that difference. Um, but it requires a lot of mental energy when you have a really long piece that you're working on. 2000, uh, 2012, you joined Fox Sports. Um, let's talk about that transition. Uh, had Buster only on recently, and I was I was teasing him. I said, Buster, you came in at a time uh, where where writers started to transition. I think Peter, uh, I think Peter Gammons was kind of the first to really make that leap from from writing to, okay, now you're going to be a TV star. And he had some funny stories about his transition. How was that for you making that transition from, from print to now you're going to be in front of the camera and now you're going to be a, a personality? Yeah, well, you have to rewind a little bit to when I was in college and going to Penn State and being in journalism school. Back then, and certainly was true with me, um, you either did print journalism or you did electronic journalism. You didn't think about doing both because people really weren't doing that. Maybe there was an odd person here or there who did that. But it was really two different disciplines, two different universes, if you ask me, because I never thought that being on television was any great, you know, enticing thing for me. I never even thought about it. All I wanted to do was write. So I was not someone who came to television as like, wow, I got to see myself on TV. No, it's the exact opposite. I mean, I'm much more of an introvert than an extrovert. So it doesn't come natural to me. And especially because of my background being in on the print side, it's also not natural. So you know, listen, there's a lot of reps that you have to do, like in any job where you just have to understand you're not going to be good starting out. It just takes time. Um, and for me, back in the day, I did a lot of stuff for CNN SI. It was a short-lived partnership between CNN and Sports Illustrated to venture into the uh, sports cable industry. Um Hopefully the audience wasn't too large so I could make all my mistakes without too many people noticing them. Um, but it is like anything else. You do more reps, you get more comfortable with it. And for me, I like a good challenge. You know, if I'm going to do something, whether it's picking up a new sport or doing television, uh, I don't want to be anything but the best I can be at it. So I did see it as a challenge. I, you know, I just, like I do even with writing, I watch the way true professionals go about it, mannerisms, the way they speak, the way they hold a microphone. You can learn a lot, and you know this is true in baseball as well, through observation. You know, the difference between seeing something and observing something. Uh, and I like constantly have my radar up when I'm reading something about a style of writing or the turn of a phrase. 
And the same thing with watching television. I don't, I don't watch it passively and I don't read passively. I'm always trying to learn and get better. And, and you do that by learning from people who are really good at it. So it takes a long time. Patience is required. And, um, you know, you know, as well as anybody, Brett, baseball is the ultimate game of repetition. Um, you get better with repetitions. It's hard, if not impossible, to shorten the learning curve of what it takes to make a major leaguer. Even the very best generally go to the minor leagues. Uh, and I equate it to the same thing. You know, some people that curve is a little bit shorter, but there's no replacing the actual experience and repetition of being in front of the camera and, and getting comfortable. Without a doubt. And, and just getting reps on this side of the mic. For me, I've done a... Th- thousands and thousands of interviews and it's uh, as easy as anything for me now all of a sudden you turn it around and you say hey interview tom verducci today well that's a different thing for me now i've i've got some reps under under my belt now and and i know how to go about it a little bit but in the beginning i was kind of like wait a minute you're supposed to ask me the questions. I can s- sit back in my chair and <laughs> and just answer, right? I remember the first time going on TV and being, you know, they wanted me to break down a situation and, and analyze. And I remember my, my body language was kind of, and I saw myself after the take and I'm going, look at me. I'm, I'm acting like I'm at home sitting in my living room chair. Like I'm here. You want to interview me? Because that's as players what we did our whole lives. We get interviewed. You guys come to our locker after the game. I sit back in my chair and I answer questions. But when you're bringing the news, it's a different ball game. And I think you're right. It takes nothing. You can talk about it and learn and people can talk all they want. But until you get there and you get the repetitions, that's the way you truly learn. Unlike And it's not like uh or it is like there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities to to hitting you know people ask me all the time you know i i get caught up in especially the young kids today with with all these hitting gurus and these camps we go to and the question they ask me well brett do you think this hitting guy i said let me tell you this the way you get better is trial and error. The way you get better is repetitions. You go into that cage for hours at a time and you hit ball after ball after ball and you tweak your hands. Does this work? Does that, that feels good. Okay. I'll take that into the game. Oops. That didn't work back to the drawing board repetition. That's how we all learn. And it's, it, it cracks me up when we, we want to take these shortcuts. Well, this guy, he helped these guys and he's a guru. And I'm going, if you can hit, you can hit, you'll figure it out. Nobody's get it. Once you get in, into the box, it's you and that pitcher. And there's no guru, guru in the world that can help you get a hit. But uh, it's just interesting, but you're right. It's, it's the reps. It's definitely the reps. Well, You've written, and I like again, oh, go ahead. Your, your, your baseball analogies are dead on because, as you know, you can get to the ball many different ways, right? The stance, the setup, your load. But if you watch everybody when they're at the moment of contact, it's pretty darn similar. The head's going to be down on the ball. Front side's going to be firm, right? It's, there are certain fundamentals that have to be there, but how you get there depends a lot on who you are. Like Tony Gwynn once told me, one of the most important things for a hitter is to know your swing. Not a swing. There's not an ideal swing out there. What is the best swing for you and to know that swing? And I think it's the same thing in the media business. I tell people all the time that it's, you don't want to be like someone because that will keep you from being the best possible version of you. 
it's like, you know, Vince Scully, who I think the world of him, uh, you know, as much respect for Vin as anybody I've ever met in the media business, he talked about starting out with Red Barber. And the advice Red Barber gave him was, you know, as he put it, don't water your own wine. Don't try to copy someone else. Do you learn from others? Of course you do. But you don't want to be a copy of somebody else. The same is true in the media business. What makes you unique is what people want to hear. They don't want to hear you trying to sound like somebody else, borrow somebody's phrase or, um, you know, their mannerisms, whatever it may be. So I, I tell young people that all the time that the important thing is, yeah, learn from other people. But the bottom line is you have to be the best version of you. And when you're good at it, the viewer is going to see that. The listener is going to hear that, that what you're doing is authentic and genuine. I'll tell you, in this business, if you're fake, if you're trying to bluff your way through things, I'm telling you, most viewers, certainly the sophisticated ones, but most listeners and viewers will sniff that out in a heartbeat. You've written several books, and, and the one that caught my eye was The Cubs Way, uh, Theo Epstein five-year plan. It's it's really interesting to me. We've got I've got uh, Madden coming on and uh, Anthony Rizzo. So I'm probably gonna, you know, we're gonna touch on some of the subjects. How did that come to be? And I was one of the I was one of the naysayers when the Cubs won that World Series. And and when I was asked, do you think the Cubs can do it? I always said the Cubs can never win a World Series. There's a reason they haven't won a World Series. Now, recently, in the past 25 years, they do have lights at the stadium, but they still play more day games than anybody else. And I said, my my rationale was over 162 games. It's so rigorous and it's every day. You can't just have four-day games during the week. Your schedules are so far off. There's so much travel. That's why we all, you know, we all have a Sunday, Sunday day game, but we know that going in, we can prepare for that. But as a Cub, you're, it's, you're used to going home after a game as not a Cub and you've got another night game and then a night game and a night game. You get in a sleeping routine. Uh, you, you go about your business in a certain way. And I thought they could never do it. And then all of a sudden they won the World Series in 2016. Uh, take me through that book, The Cubs Way. Well, I'm going to start out before I forget with the end of the story, which is winning game seven, because the Cubs would still be proving you correct about not being able to win a World Series without divine intervention. If it doesn't rain, I'm convinced they don't win that game. I was in the Cubs dugout when that rain delay hit. And I'm telling you, that team was dead. Rajai Davis had just about taken their last breath out of them. I know the game was tied, but everything was in Cleveland's way. I mean, I don't even remember if it ever happened the last time the road team won a game seven. It's a huge advantage in baseball in a close game to go into a last at bat situation and be the home team. You don't have to protect the lead. You have the crowd on your side. Everything was in Cleveland's favor. And then your buddy, Joe West said, it's raining too hard guys. Let's get the tarp on the field. And I went in cause I don't like getting my suits wet, Brett. So I went into the Cubs dugout <laughs> and they had actually all piled out of there already, except for one guy. And that was a role Chapman. And I will never forget this. 
obviously Chapman was the one who gave up the home run to Rajai Davis. And he was physically beaten. He was, his eyes were wet. I don't want to say he was crying, but his, there were tears forming in his eyes. That's how hurt he was about having lost the lead that would have given the Cubs the World Series. And he was the last one, the only one in the dugout when I heard somebody call to Chappie, we got a meeting. Chapman gets up from the dugout and he literally grabs my arm almost to brace himself to stand up and walk. I mean, he, he literally looked like a guy who just went, you know, 12 rounds and was on the losing side of a decision. So anyway, I had no idea what was going on behind me in the famous meeting that Jason Hayward called and in the weight room and, you know, hey guys, look, look, they basically regrouped. They rebooted everything, which never would have happened without the rain delay. And I'm telling you, it sounds corny, but when they came back in that dugout, I think it was about 17 minutes later, that sounded like a high school football team running on the field Friday night homecoming game. They had more energy than I think I've seen out of any team. And then Schwarber steps up there, rips a single right field. The rest is history. There's no doubt in my mind that that happened because they were able to reset everything and get back on the field with a completely different frame of mind. That being said, I've got that story out of the way. I was thinking before the postseason began, because, you know, the Cubs won their division pretty easily. No guarantees they're going to win the World Series. But I started thinking, you know what, if the Cubs win the World Series, this is the greatest sports championship of my lifetime and will be. I mean, think about it. What actually would be bigger than the Cubs winning for the first time in 108 years? Nothing. And I felt an obligation to write that story because... Number one, I'm a baseball fan. I'm not a fan of any team. We get accused of that all the time, but I love going to the ballpark because I don't care who wins and loses. I'm never unhappy when I leave the ballpark. It is a great way to enjoy the game of baseball. I root for extra innings. I root for good stories. I do not root for individual teams. So I don't get caught up in the back and forth. There is no back and forth for me. And that's, I love that. So Again, I'm thinking if they happen to win, this is the greatest championship, and I, I feel an obligation to write about it. Now, I probably would have written something even if they didn't. Well, I know I would have. If they didn't win the World Series, it would have been a different kind of book. It would be more about rebuilding or building the Cubs, in Theo's case, um, towards a championship without the payoff to it. Obviously, it worked a lot better that they won the World Series. Um, but I really enjoyed digging into the process of how that happened because the words changing the culture are thrown around way too much in sports. But when you're talking about a history of losing and actually an embracing of losing, which happened for years and years in Chicago with the whole lovable losers thing and changing that mindset and how that's done to me, that was a fascinating story. That was almost as fascinating as, the actual X's and O's of how they won postseason games to win the World Series. Very cool. Writers and players relationship. Uh, I know how it is on my side as a player. Um, interested in your your version, and and especially now, um, you know there there could be when when you weren't in the booth, but now being an analyst, being in the booth, coming down. Do you see, because as players, and, and you know this, Tommy, we watch, we see everything. 
In between at bats, I'm always up there watching the monitors, not necessarily watching the commentators, but I want to see tendencies. I'm watching the pitcher, what he's doing. He's pitching to, you know, so-and-so who I think he's going to pitch me similar to. So in between innings, I was always up watching. And I always, you know, there was the commentators on. I could hear him. Uh, how is your relationship and how do you find the players are with you when you come out of the booth? They ever give you a hard time about something you said or? Yeah, I mean, I, I've had players and managers challenge me because of something that I've said. And listen, I'm, when I'm doing games in the booth, um, I'm held to a much different standard because people like to say, well, he never played the game. You know, just dismissing you on that basis alone and not the actual information. I get that. And I've had people come at me from that perspective. And I'm more than happy to talk to them because everything that I bring to a broadcast is brought from a position of knowledge, authority, information. In other words, I'm not making things up. I've talked to all the coaches. I've talked to the players. I've done my homework. I make sure that, you know, I have to work twice as hard because of that built-in bias. I get it. I'm not complaining about it. It's just the way the world works. I get it. Uh, so, yes, I've been challenged on that regard. Uh, but at the same time, I will tell you this, Brett, that it is an absolute pleasure working with like 100% of the players. And I really mean that. And I'm not just saying that, incurring favor to them. It's changed a lot. When I first started out, I thought it was much more combative. Uh, at the clubhouse, was a very, let's say, unwelcome place to a lot of people. I know this. When I was at Sports Illustrated, the guys who didn't cover baseball dreaded a baseball assignment because they were outsiders coming into the baseball world. And it is scary for people who don't know their way around the clubhouse, uh, don't have the connections in the game. I mean, it's tough enough for those, those of us in the game. It was a different era. And you know back then it was different for the players themselves. If you were a young player coming up, you were to be seen and not heard. And worse than that, oftentimes you were treated poorly just because that's the way it was. You didn't have the service time. You were ridiculed. Thankfully, those days are pretty much over. I mean, service time still matters, but I think people realize that if you want to have a winning team, you need to treat that kid who just came up to the minor leagues as well as you treat the guy who's been in the big leagues for 15 years. That only makes sense from a team perspective. This generation does not respond to negative motivation the way it was a generation ago. Now, if you get on somebody, you're going to lose that player. You're going to lose the clubhouse. So I see that dynamic among players changing so that it actually has improved the relationship with the media because everything tended to be combative back in the day. And that includes from our side of the fence with media. Uh, you know, I'm not absolving media blame in terms of tensions in a clubhouse setting. They work both ways. So I think it's much easier to work now. Uh, in some ways, it's harder because the access is worse. And I think as players – they really have to guard against this. And we've seen this the last couple of years because of COVID. We really have to let the fans know who the players are as people. If you're rooting for a baseball team or a player, you're much more invested when you feel like you know that player. It's the same as you're watching a Netflix series. Character development is extremely important. If you don't develop the character, you don't root for an outcome for the character. It's the same thing following baseball. If that guy is just another number, he's just another jersey, he's just another guy in your fantasy league or your betting app, you're not invested in the game. 
But if you care about him, if you know something about him, you know his backstory, you know how hard he worked to get to the big leagues, you've seen him talk on TV, you like the way he presents himself, you know what? Now you're going to root for the guy. I mean, truly root for the guy and not just to, to win the over-under on your betting app. And I think baseball has to realize that you're in danger of getting a little bit too far away from that, first because of COVID, and now sort of like realizing this is sort of the new normal where there's no clubhouse access, we won't have guys talk to the media much. I think that's a big mistake. I think we really have to get back to making sure that players are seen and heard and their stories are told. Uh, and, yeah, I'm biased because – I like telling stories, and, and I think it's important to what I do in general, uh, but I think it's important to the health of the sport that we really do care about these players. You know, it's one of the best things about the game is that a lot of baseball players, I mean, actually, they're a lot bigger up close, but they kind of look like you and me. You know, you don't have to be seven feet tall. You don't have to weigh 300 pounds. Um, you know, you have Jose Altuve and Aaron Judge, different size players. Just about anybody can play the game. They don't have helmets on their faces. We can see them. Uh, we see a lot of them playing 162 games a year. So underscoring the humanness of the game and the people who play it, I think is super important. So that's where, to me, access is super important because when you think about our access as media, we're talking about access for fans and the, the people who root for these teams. Great World Series. You just got back from it. Uh, what are we going to see this offseason? Give me your give me your crystal ball. Who's going to make the, the biggest impact? I'm hearing some Detroit's going to get a little bit active. Maybe Texas Rangers, not not the typical offseason moves. We know the Yankees are going to be active. We know the Dodgers, the Red Sox. Uh, give me your crystal ball. Who, who's going to make the biggest moves and have the biggest impact? Yeah, you hit a couple of them. I think Detroit and Texas will be two big players. Maybe not at the absolute top of the market, but it wouldn't surprise me if, say, Detroit got in on Carlos Correa and Texas did on Trevor Story. San Francisco Giants, I mean, with the year that they had, I think they jump-started their, their rebuild here, if you want to call it a rebuild. Um, they have some money to spend. and It's a great, attractive place to play with the, all the systems and coaching staff they have in place. Yankees and Dodgers will be in at the top of the pitching market. You know, they'll spend the Yankees reset their tax, you know, basically to get in this position to be able to step up like they did right before the 2009 season, where they literally spent a half a billion dollars to get back and make a World Series run and won the World Series that year. So whether it's Justin Verlander to Freddie Freeman uh, or Corey Seager, if you're a Yankees fan, everybody is in play. I mean, everybody. It's been too long since, in their mind, they won the World Series. And as I said, part of their strategy was to reset their CBT last year to, to be able to step up this year. And they also have to get Aaron Judge extension done as well. So they'll be very active. But those are the teams that really stand out to me. On the other end of the spectrum, you have teams like Oakland and Cincinnati, you're seeing already, uh, are paring down. This is just part of the ebb and flow of the game that, you know, it's very difficult for – teams to stay consistently on top unless you're the Yankees or the Dodgers. Everybody else, I'll throw the Cardinals in there as well. They've been tremendously consistent, but it, it's tough to maintain success because success eventually winds up being expensive. And you think about it, Brett, we haven't had a World Series winner repeat since 2000, the longest time since the World Series began. 
I think we've had eight different champions in the last eight years. We've had half the teams in baseball in the World Series in the last decade and a half. Uh, it's very democratic. Uh, this is the way, you know, the world, the roulette wheel keeps spinning in baseball. And if you get one championship, I mean, look at the Braves. Look how long it took them to get this one. It's very difficult to win one. So when I hear general managers start talking about winning multiple championships and we want to sustain something and get back to the World Series, forget it, man. It ain't happening. It's just too hard. There's a lot of parity, a lot of smart people in baseball. So when you do get this World Series, look what's happened in recent years. You mentioned the Cubs, how long they waited. The Nationals, first time in 15 years. Uh, the Astros, first time in 50 years. The Braves, first time since 95. Uh, you know, going back to the White Sox and the Red Sox in 04 and 05. You know, we've been paying off some long due debts here <laughs> since this century turned over. And it, there's nothing that really I find more heartwarming than seeing a team win for the first time in a generation. I mean, you're like me, Brett. You grew up watching those Atlanta teams. And you, for you, playing on those teams, you expected them to be in the World Series every year. They got the one in 95, but you kind of got spoiled. Yeah, think about if you're a 25, 26-year-old kid in Atlanta, you wait a long time to wear a shirt that says world champions on it, get that hoodie that says we're number one. So I love seeing the kind of the sharing of the championships and people get to experience that um, because it is it's something that you should always cherish and, and, and never expect there's no one coming the next year. The Dodgers found that out this year. It's yeah, it is unbelievable. I think the parity is is really good in the game, uh, but you you hit on it. it how you, you talk about winning multiple world championships? I laugh. You know, I played with with so many great players, and it, you're lucky to get one, get to a World Series, let alone win one. I think I think this epitomizes winning the World Series. If you were to tell me two months ago the Atlanta Braves are going to win the World Series, I'd laugh you off the phone. There's no chance. And then, and then I, as I got to see the Braves play more and more throughout the, the, the postseason, it just came together and it was almost magical. It was everybody was doing their part. Your Rosario's coming up with just a huge postseason. Uh, Riley, Freddie Freeman's the, you know, he's the, he's the annual MVP candidate, but the best, one of the best players in the game period, let alone that team Acuna, he goes down. Morton breaks his leg. Uh, you got, you got Jock Peterson wearing the pearls hitting timely homers. I mean, it's just a magical run. And I think you said it right. It's so hard to win one, but, but it's really cool seeing how that world champion that's crowned at the end, how they get there. And, and it is kind of magical each and every year, unless you have that absolute powerhouse that just mows through the postseason. That doesn't happen too much any, anymore. You got to get a break here, a break there. Guys got to step up that, that you don't depend on. And there's always that, that hero story, you know, you've seen, uh, you see the headlines, but who expected Rosario to be to be that? Who expected Freddie Freeman at the beginning of the postseason to struggle that hard? He got back in line and, and started being Freddie Freeman. But it was a real interesting ride for me. You were right there on the ground watching it all the way through. Cool. I, I was really happy for not only Atlanta, but the city of Atlanta. Yeah, I was too. I mean, you think about Brian Snicker, 45 years in the Braves organization, wins his first. He'd been demoted three different times for the Major League staff. Uh, Ron Washington, 52 years in professional baseball, gets his first World Series ring. 
Freddie Freeman gets his first after 15 years. Rick Kratz, the pitching coach, first in 47 years. Yeah, it's, again, so happy for those baseball lifers to finally get one. They know better than anybody how hard it is to get one. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I will tell you that before this year began, I picked the Atlanta Braves to win the World Series. Last year, 2020, I picked, before the season started, the Dodgers over the Rays in the World Series because I thought in the short season, pitching depth was really going to play. and That's exactly what happened. I picked the Braves in 2021 because I spent a lot of time with them in the bubble last year in the postseason. And I can't tell you how impressed I was with just the vibe around that team, the teamwork, the camaraderie, the coaching staff. And I saw a team up three games to one on the Dodgers that just wasn't quite advanced enough to finish it off. But, you know, when you get that far and, and you get – close to the edge and get that brass ring you don't quite get it you're the better for it when you have the right group of people and you mentioned freddie freeman i would start with him when your best player is just the kind of good dude and solid accountable guy that freddie is well everybody's going to line up and be that same way so i was i picked the braves to win of course not knowing how it would happen they have a 500 record into august uh, and Acuna would go down. I obviously didn't see any of that happening. But it turns out they played so well in the last two months because of some of the things I saw in the bubble. That was a very closely knit team that played the game the right way. And again, I don't want to underestimate what I thought of their coaching staff, which I thought did a tremendous job of keeping everybody on the same page and, and just making in-game adjustments. So, you know, all props to the Braves because – uh, I know we're conditioned to think the best team, the team that wins the most game, is supposed to win the World Series. Well, that that happened. That stopped happening a long time ago before they expanded the postseason. It's about who's playing better at the end of the year. And if you look at August, September, October, that Braves, you can make a case for being the best team. Well, who do you like? Who do you like next year? I'm going to Vegas. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> a little early, a little early for that. <laughs> let's see how early. Let's wait to see how it plays out. But let's see how the free agent. Yeah, let's see how everything plays out. Yeah, but the uh, Tampa Bay Rays are scary good right now. Their young talent uh, is just what they put on the field. I mean, we always think of them as a pitching deep and run prevention team. Their offense now is top flight. Now they're going to have they're up against some payroll issues, so. Let's wait and see what their roster looks like when we get to spring training. But uh, keep your eye on the Rays and what they do this offseason. Buster Posey, Hall of Famer or no? You know, I'll answer that two ways, Brett. Number one is when I do that and I get that ballot in front of me, I do a lot of homework. So I don't want to jump the gun and make a decision. So I'll, what I'll do is I'll give you my gut decision. Like my instinct is to say yes. Now, I've gone back. It's been my gut reaction on some guys, and I look back on it and said, well, actually, his numbers aren't quite there. But my gut reaction is yes. I mean, what just a a charmed career, first of all, to be rookie of the year, World Series champion, MVP, um, you know, accolades. I think only Pete Rose is the only other player with the kind of championships and rings that Posey has. And let's face it, I think one of the best at his position for more than a decade a pretty good loose definition of a Hall of Famer in my book. So we'll see. Uh, that's why we have this five years to wait to actually make a yay or nay vote on it. 
Tom Verducci, I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. It was a pleasure. Uh, what I do each and every Boone Podcast at the end is we kick it back to the voice, Dan, for a question from the fans. Dan? Gentlemen, how are you? Great. All right, Tom, this one comes from Jeff in St. Louis, and he wants to know who is going to be the most improved team in 2022? Wow. I'm going to say the Detroit Tigers. And I say that because if you look at their season in 2021, they played great in the second half of the season. They were a competitive team with not a lot of elite talent. And I think if they do add some more talent already, Tucker Barnhart, Eduardo Rodriguez, I think if they get a Verlander, they get a Correa, they can challenge for a division title next year. Tom Verducci, thank you so much for coming on the Brett Boone Podcast. We appreciate it, sir. Mailbag. Oh, Booner. Mailbag time, Dan. You know that time, sir. Ah, that's what I'm talking about. All right, Brett, this one comes from Jennifer in Seattle, and she wants to know this. Brett, oftentimes when athletes or celebrities go to hotels or they stay in different places, they use aliases for when they check into hotels. Which ones did you use if you used any? I did. As a rookie, I didn't. Um, and back then, yeah, there, there was a lot of people. Nowadays, it's all cell phone. Nobody calls a, you know, usually a room. Nobody uses those room phones anymore. But I was, let me think, who did I use? I was Jack Tripper. <laughs> <laughs> what it, from Three's Company for a while, and then I was then I was Greg Luganus, and uh, yeah, so, so I went back and forth. You weren't gonna you weren't gonna find me if I didn't want you to. So those were my two favorite. But yeah, that was pretty common. Pretty common people to have an alias. All right, and on the backbone of that one, Brett, what about fan mail? When people would send you stuff, did you write back? What was some weird gifts people would send you? <laughs> well, you. Different different times. Uh, when I was a younger player, I tried to answer as many fans as I could. I tried to always sign uh, as much as I could out on the field. I, you know, walking around the city during the day, if any fans would ever come up, I'd always try to go out of my way to do it as much as I could. Uh, it got to a point where you start answering enough mail, the mail starts has a tendency to double. So I got to a point where, you know, it got to a point in my time in Seattle where you, you get a lot, a lot of family. You really just don't have the time to, to go through and answer them. And, uh, you know, you try to make it known, like, don't send it to the ballpark. You know, get me get me at a restaurant, get me out in the city, get me at the at the ballpark. So uh, I, I try to do the best I can, but it, it, it's, a, it's a tough gig to keep up with. That's going to do it for the podcast. And a special thanks once again goes out to the people at DraftKings and Manscaped for being sponsors of the podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boom Podcast. The executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content for the Boom Podcast is provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends. And make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode episode of the show while you're at it give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the boom podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here at the boom podcast i am dan levy thanks for listening